Amen. Well, good morning, church. Oh, man, you guys can do better than that. Good morning, church. Okay, that's a little better. And it is certainly a pleasure to gather together this morning. For those that may not know me, my name is Brandon Reed, and I am the associate pastor here at Christ Covenant Fellowship. It is my privilege to gather together with you all this morning. Hey, if it's your first time visiting with us, thank you. Uh, praise God. We're thankful that you've chosen to worship here with us. Before you leave, make sure you introduce yourself to me or Pastor Tyler or even one of our members. Uh, we'd love to get to know you a little bit better, uh, better, tell you a little bit more about our church. Uh, thank you again for joining us. Listen, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, if you would. Over the last several weeks, we've been studying through Paul's letter to the Philippians, to the saints there at the city of Philippi. If you were here last week, then you know we concluded our study in chapter 1 by looking through verses 27 through 30. And as we studied those verses, we found that true biblical unity is only founded in Christ and his gospel. We also found that God-honoring legitimate unity means holding fast to God's word. And that this kind of unity is represented by believers locking arms together, bound together by the blood of Jesus Christ, striving together side by side, standing firm in the faith of the gospel. And that means, that unity even means enduring suffering and persecution for the sake of Christ Jesus. You see, what Paul was doing there is he's guiding the Philippians toward this idea of Christ-centered unity. However, I think it's important for us to note that this isn't a challenge or an exhortation that is exclusive to first century believers. It's just as important to us right now in the 21st century. I don't think we can overstate the importance of God's people standing together, having the same goal and the same motivations, moving forward together, seeking the same end, right? In a world that's plagued with division, Right? There's division over political affiliations. There's divisions over ethnic and cultural issues, gender issues. We even have division over theological issues. Right? But what an incredible apologetic it could be for the bride of Christ and for Christ himself, ultimately, if we stood together unified beyond all of these issues. And not just any kind of unity, again, a biblical Christ-centered unity. What a testimony to the exclusive and transcendent power that would be, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, this is Paul's challenge here to the Philippians. And ultimately, it's my challenge to you, to us, as a body of believers, to demonstrate this type of unity so as we begin in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is essentially continuing his plea for unity amongst, amongst this body of believers. And what we'll see in these verses is we don't simply see a basis or foundation for our unity, but we'll really see the inspiration and the reasons for our unity. Man, this text has some incredible implications for the life of the believer, also, what we'll find here are some incredible and magnificent and awe-inspiring truths that are realities for believers. And there's some great truth right here in this text, these verses. We'll also find, again, Paul, as I said, continuing this exhortation for believers to honor Christ by the way they live in community and unity with one another. So what I want to look at what, with the time we have here together this morning, I want to look at three things. First, I want to look at what inspires unity within the church, within Christian community. Number two, I want to look at what it means to be like-minded, of one accord, right? And then number three, I want to look at this idea of Christ-centered humility. So let's read this text. It's chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and then we'll jump in. Let us read. It says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, 
being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are moved by your glory and grace and mercy. God, we thank you that we're able to gather together this morning and sing your praises. Father, it is my prayer that with the time we have together right now, that you would be exalted. God, as I speak, I pray that it would be all about you, not about me. As we read a text that is centered on humility, God, help me to speak with great humility, yet with great passion, courage, and boldness. And that my speaking, God, you would work through that for your glory. Apart from you moving, apart from your spirit intervening and being at work, all of my words are empty and meaningless. I'm speaking in vain. So God, I pray that you would do the work that only you could do right now to illuminate this text for us, that it would speak to our hearts, and that we would live accordingly. Glorify yourself in this time, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name I pray. And all God's people said, amen. All right, so chapter 2, Paul's letter to the Philippians here, it basically picks up right where chapter 1 left off. So we understand that Paul has spent uh, the last several verses building this case for gospel-centered unity. And he encourages the believers there to stand firm in one spirit, uh, to have one mind for the faith of the gospel. That's chapter 1, verse 27. So after giving them this foundation for genuine unity, he now shifts to the believers' reasons or motivations to move towards that unity. Let's read it again. We'll read just verse 1 here, and this is what it says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And we'll stop right there. Now, some translations, they begin, it begins with the word, therefore. And we understand that that is really tying the previous verses or the previous thought together with this thought. This is Paul connecting these two portions of his letter together. And what you have to understand is that this is just one continuous train of thought here. In the original manuscripts, when, when it's written, it's just one letter. There are no chapters. There are no page breaks or divisions. It is just Paul writing one continuous letter, a continuous train of thought to his readers. So what Paul is saying here, to tie these two sections together, Paul is saying that the result of unity with one another in the same struggle and suffering because of opposition outside of the church this should compel us to seek unity with those who have different interests inside the church, right? In other words, Paul has already instructed these believers on how to battle external conflict. Now he's instructing them on how to deal with internal conflict, right? So Paul opens this section of his letter, and what he does is he gives four clauses here. He begins with four clauses that start with the word if. And these statements are essentially rhetorical questions, and we all know that a rhetorical question is one that essentially doesn't need an answer. It's a given. We already know the answer, right? So these are kind of rhetorical questions, rhetorical statements, and he uses the word if, but again, however, in this context, these are not possibilities. They are certain realities, and he wants to direct the attention of these believers to these realities, what they have in Christ Jesus. The idea here is that if these believers have indeed received these things, then they have a responsibility to do what Paul is instructing them to do, to move towards that gospel-centered unity, that oneness amongst the body. So let's briefly look at these four clauses here that serve as the grounds for our unity. And honestly, man, each one of these deserves its own sermon. Now, I don't have time to dig into all of them for the sake of time, right? But, so I just want to spend a couple of minutes on each of these four clauses, and then we'll continue to move on. So first and foremost, he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
well, what, what does he mean by the word encouragement? What does, what does that mean? And in what way are we encouraged by Christ Jesus? Well, first, let's define the word encouragement. And the word encouragement can typically have three meanings. Number one, it can be the act of emboldening, emboldening another in belief or course of action. Number two, it can represent a strong request. Or number three, encouragement can be simply lifting one's spirits. Now, although all three of these definitions could have meaning here, could have implications here, exhortation, request, and comfort, given the context, we're right to believe that what Paul is doing is using encouragement uh, as far as it defines an exhortation, right? He's exhorting his uh, readers here. That's the kind of encouragement that he's offering them. The Apostle Paul is urging his readers to a certain course of action. And again, we know that course to be Christ-centered unity, even in the face of persecution and division within the church. So that's what he's pushing them towards. But what, what motivates a person to live this way? What motivates us as believers to live this way? And the short answer is our great and glorious Savior, who is Jesus Christ. Right? Ultimately, for believers, the only true and lasting encouragement that we're going to find, especially in the face of suffering and division, is knowing Christ Jesus. That's it. That's the only true and lasting encouragement we're going to find. 2 Corinthians 1.5 says this, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort also. And what an encouragement to believers this morning. I hope that's an encouragement to you today. And again, you, let's remember why Paul is directing their attention to encouragement that they have in Christ. You remember they're facing opposition and persecution outside and battling division within. It was necessary that they remained encouraged. So the Apostle Paul, as he so often does, says, fix your eyes on Christ Jesus. He points them to the suffering servant. My brothers and sisters, we are only able to endure and to persevere when we remember that Christ Jesus also suffered on our behalf, but he was vindicated by God the Father. And those of us that suffer for Jesus, we too are strengthened knowing that we too will be vindicated. We have victory in the cross. That is our great encouragement in Christ Jesus. Amen, somebody. I hope that's good news to you today. Our encouragement in Christ. Now let's consider those words there, in Christ. Now Paul is referring to what we have in Jesus, yes and amen. But when Paul writes encouragement in Christ, this also serves as a reminder of our position. Being secure in Christ Jesus brings us a type of encouragement that the world can offer. The world cannot give that to you. For Christ Jesus is our peace. He is our salvation, our righteousness, our only means of redemption. Brothers and sisters, because we are in Christ, we have a certain and eternal assurance. And that should inform the way that you live. Not just the way that you live, but the way that you love and fellowship with one another. That should shape our priorities and our perspective. Amen? You see, when the rest of the world is scrambling and falling to pieces because of the things that are happening, we turn on our news and we see the troubles that plague society. That's sin at work, by the way. When we see that and, we fall, and the rest of the world falls to pieces, we must remain encouraged in Christ. I don't know why we look elsewhere. We turn to all of these other things to find encouragement and joy and peace, and then we're shocked when it doesn't last. We fall apart too, as if we've forgotten where true and lasting encouragement is found. Ultimately, again, that's only in Christ Jesus. Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, you better believe there's encouragement in Christ. There's absolutely encouragement 
in Christ Jesus. Man, this should be a fairly simple concept for us to understand as believers. If you don't understand why Jesus Christ and the gospel of good news is encouraging to you as a believer this morning, then maybe I should stop and we'll start at the beginning. Maybe we should go back to the beginning. If you don't understand why that's encouraging today, I hope that's not lost upon you this morning. And I encourage you to carry that with you. When you're on the job and you're having a bad day, and guess what? I'm preaching to myself right here. Carry that with you. When you're at home and your kids are just wild and out of control, or you're having troubles in your marriage, you're having financial troubles, when you, again, turn on the news or you look at social media and you see all these things that plague our world, carry that encouragement with you. Be lifted in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right. So Paul says any encouragement in Christ. We get that. All right. Number two, he says if there is any comfort from love. Now, some translations will add the pronoun his. It'll say any comfort from his love in order to clarify who Paul is referring to, whose love he's referring to. Now, there's very little doubt or debate among scholars that he is indeed pointing to Christ Jesus's love. And one of the themes that we see that is consistent here in Paul's letter is the idea of love. We know that Paul's constantly pushing these believers to love one another. There must be genuine, deep fellowship and love amongst them. Paul certainly deemed it necessary. And we know, or at least I hope we know, that Christ Jesus expects that of us as well. In fact, the reason that Paul expects love amongst the believers is because Christ Jesus commanded it first. All right, let's look at John 13, verses 34 and 35. I think we all know this very familiar text. And this is what Jesus says to his disciples. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Again, that should be a truth that's fairly obvious to us. We know that Christ calls us to love one another. But here's, here Paul's plea for unity amongst the believers is motivated by Christ's love for them. Yes, of course, Paul desires that love amongst the brothers, amongst the saints there in Philippi, but he first reminds the Philippians of Christ's love for them. And as believers, our love for one another must be empowered by Christ Jesus. His love for us must compel us to love one another. And man, when we talk about the love of God, right, we talk about the love of Christ, what a glorious reality that is to know the love of Christ. You see, when you understand and experience the depth and overwhelming glory of Christ's Love, the love that led him to lay down his life in exchange for yours, that supplies the comfort and security, again, that the world can't give to you. Knowing that you are loved by Creator God should bring you comfort, especially when you consider the alternative, being under his wrath. Right? And I don't say that to scare you. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just a messenger. I'm telling you what, what, what this says, what this says right here. Right? John 3, 36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. And this is the part we need to pay attention. But the wrath of God remains on him. It remains on him. See, that's our natural state apart from Christ Jesus. We're objects of God's wrath apart from Christ Jesus. Jesus, but when you remember that God has taken these sinful and lowly and broken and rebellious people and chosen to make them objects of his affection, man, that should move you to a place of humility and love for your brothers and sisters. Love for your brothers and sisters. And man, again, I wish I had more time to dig into that. The implications of the love of Christ. What an astounding thought that is to be loved by Creator God. You see, the type of comfort that Paul has in view here, as it relates to this, is not, it's not a shallow, surface-level, emotional type of comfort. That's not what Paul is pushing towards here. The idea that is driving this type of comfort is found in the Latin word that's used here, 
And some of the text, it's a Latin word that's it's fortis, F-O-R-T-I-S, fortis, which also means brave. So Paul's hope when writing this letter is that the saints there in Philippi would stand firm in the faith, united with one another, facing suffering and tribulation, ultimately comfort, comforted by the love of God. And guess what? That's going to take a certain level of courage. It's going to take a certain level of bravery that's only evoked by the comfort of the king. That courage, that bravery in the face of persecution, it, it's, we're led there when we're comforted by Jesus. We understand who we are and what we have in him. We find great comfort in his love and from his love. Because his love is not like a worldly love. It's unchangeable. It's immovable. It's everlasting. It's unconditional. There are no prerequisites that you must meet in order to be loved by Creator God. I hope that speaks to your heart this morning. Again, Paul says that what you have in Christ Jesus displayed through the love of Christ, all these eternal benefits, this new and everlasting life, this reconciliation and this peace with God, because of this, take heart and be comforted. Take heart and be comforted. Right, so number three, we'll move on. Paul says, if there is any participation in the Spirit. That's our third clause here. Paul says, any participation in the Spirit. Now, the word used here for participation is similar to the word that Paul uses in chapter one for partnership, right? If you remember back in chapter one, he talks about this partnership of the gospel. Well, the word participation is very similar that Paul uses here. But here you see Paul is pushing a little bit deeper on the meaning of that partnership with the church. In fact, this is more than a partnership here. This is communion in the Spirit. This is believers sharing in the Spirit that's been given to them by Christ Jesus. This is uh, essentially expressing a, a commonality of ownership or possession, something that is mutually shared among believers. And that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Believers in Christ are heirs to the Holy Spirit. We inherit and have ownership of the Spirit as it rests among us. Brothers and sisters, the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the grave, it lives and resides in you. It lives in each of us, all of those that belong to Christ Jesus. This is what links us together in such a powerful and incredible way, unlike anything else. What a glorious thing it is to have this fellowship of the Spirit. And, and I want you to get this. Not only is that mutually shared among believers, it's mutually exclusive to believers. It's something that only we get to benefit from. Those who believe in Christ Jesus, who have been redeemed and born again, who are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, man, if that's true, and each of you are participating in that fellowship with the Spirit, then be unified with one another. Be unified together. When you understand the astonishing reality of this truth and this bond, it should trump or supersede any worldly or secular unions that we try to elevate or prioritize. Bonds based on ethnicity, based on culture, based on politics, based on all of these other things. My friends, we have the Spirit of God residing within us. Within us. Let that be the, the tie that binds us together. Let that be what unifies us. See, Paul understood the power and the value of this fellowship in the Spirit and how that would lead these saints to a genuine God-honoring unity. And this fellowship in the Spirit is essential to the success of our unity because it is only by being led to the Spirit that we're able to stand together. Right? As believers, we cannot overlook the importance of participation and the spirit and the significant impact this has on our unity, on the body. This is why Paul on more than one occasion reminds them, be of one spirit. Be of one spirit. He says that in verse 27. He says it again here. Be of one spirit. That's important. We can't overlook the importance of participating in the spirit together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we'll move on to our fourth and final clause here. Paul writes, if there is any affection and sympathy... Now, the version I have, the ESV reads affection and sympathy. Some versions you have may read affection and mercy. 
or they may read tenderness and compassion, regardless of how you, what translation you have, the intention and the motivation, the purpose remains the same. Paul is challenging his readers to consider any affection and sympathy that they've received in and through Christ Jesus. Again, this should be fairly simple to understand. This shouldn't be something we have to look too far to find as believers who have been saved by grace, once enemies of God, separated from him because of our sin. We are now reconciled and brought near to God. And if you're here this morning, you're a believer, again, I hope that's not lost on you. We just talked about the comfort of God's love, of being loved by Christ. Man, don't, don't diminish that. That has massive implications for your life. So Paul is directing their attention to this affection of Christ. But if you remember in chapter one, he also said that he yearned for them with the affection of Christ. He is pushing them towards his love for them, a Christ-like love as well, in, in hopes that they would have that and demonstrate that for one another. Understanding the love of Christ helps us to understand the way we should love and demonstrate affection for each other. And maybe you're here this morning and maybe you understand God's love, right? Maybe you understand the affection of Christ and maybe you understand this comfort that we have and this encouragement and all of these other things. But I love the word that's used here as well, sympathy, right? Maybe you've never pondered on God's sympathies. I sympathizes with humanity. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Listen, Jesus, who is fully God, who is fully man, understands and sympathizes with the weakness of humanity. In fact, it is in God's nature to have this tendency to sympathize with humanity. And that was displayed through him stepping in, intervening, fixing what we had fractured. Rather than leaving us, as Pastor Tyler said earlier, to figure it out on our own, what we messed up, what we wrecked, he rectified. Right, where we had gone wrong, he righted the wrong that we made. He sympathized, he knew we couldn't fix it. There was nothing we could do. Maybe you never thought about God's sympathy towards humanity. You know, I think about that from time to time, I had somebody once asked me, man, well, how come God only, you know, demonstrates sympathy or love? Or how come he only saves some people? Why does God save anyone at all? Why would he save anyone at all? That's his nature. That's his character, his affections, his sympathy. And that's a demonstra demonstration, and I want to be clear here, about his goodness, not ours, about how good he is. He doesn't save and, and show us affection because we're so good and great and mighty and glorious. It's a demonstration of his great and glorious, perfect character. You see, in light of this reality, Paul asked them to recall how the affection and sympathy of God has touched their own lives in hopes that this would lead them to a place again of Christ-centered unity and the way that they love one another. In other words, listen, if you expect all of these benefits, right, if all of these things are true, and you expect all of these benefits from Christ's love, from the love of God, and you expect those compassions to be demonstrated towards you, make sure you demonstrate them to others as well. Make sure you show that to your brothers and sisters. So that's how Paul opens this section. He has issued these four clauses as motivations and reasons for believers to be unified. Now, as we move to verse 2, Paul is moving from reminding them of these truths to challenging these believers on how they respond to these truths, right? So what Paul is saying is if, if these things are true, you should be more inclined to do what I'm about to instruct you to do. If these things are true, this is the basis for you to do what I am calling you to do. And this is our second point. We'll look at Paul's continuous call to Christ-centered unity. Let's read verse 2. Paul says, complete my joy. That's going to be important. We're going to talk about that in just a minute as well. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Again, this is Paul continuing his plea for unity. He's basically echoing what he said in chapter 1, verse 27. 
See, Paul has directed their attention to several glorious realities of being in Christ Jesus. So again, if these things are true, if they are certainties for those that are in Christ, if these are our eternal benefits of his love, his comfort, his encouragement, all these things, then we should be swift to move towards unity and Christ-centered solidarity with one another. And as, as though these four clauses, these certainties weren't enough, Paul adds one more here. Do you see what he does there? He adds one more reason for the church to be unified. And he says it's his own joy. His own joy. You see, the disunity among believers would diminish the joy of Paul. For this is a guy who helped found this church. He had pastored these people. He had taught them the gospel. So he wants them to be unified, as do all pastors, I assume. I think it is the joy of everyone who's been called to shepherd a flock to love the people that God's given to him, to look amongst his, his congregation, to look among the people of God and see unity. If you can find me a pastor who says, no, nah, I like it when my people are divided, please send them to me. Because I got to figure out, I mean, that's an interesting strategy. I just want to know where, what, what you're thinking with that. No, it's a joy to look amongst the congregation and see real Christ-centered biblical unity. And that's what Paul desired. He desired their unity because Christ Jesus desires our unity. Our great high priest desires that we be unified together. In John 17, uh, Jesus prays that we'd be sanctified in the truth and that we would all be one. That we would all be one. That's Christ Jesus' desire for his followers. So Paul says, you can complete my joy here. And then he adds this um, instruction here. He says, you can complete my joy by doing what? He says, you can complete my joy by having the largest congregation in the city. Oh, it doesn't say that? Oh, it says, you can complete my joy by having the biggest building in the city. Oh, it doesn't say that either. Well, then it certainly says you can complete my joy by having the best worship band, right? It says, that's it. That's what it says. Oh, no, it doesn't say that either. It says, you can complete my joy by coming here and bailing me out of jail right now. It doesn't, I need new glasses. It doesn't, doesn't say that either. No, it doesn't. You see, because Paul's joy was ultimately in Christ. It wasn't tied to his circumstances, and it wasn't tied to the quote-unquote success from a worldly standard of the church. Paul's joy was ultimately in Christ and seeing his people unified in Christ. That's where his joy was anchored. Again, he had pastored these individuals. He had taught them the gospel and loved them well. He wanted to be able to look at his people, whether he's present with them or not, and see that they were unified of the same mind, of one spirit, in one accord. He says, you will complete my joy when you are of the same mind, same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now here he refers to our mind twice. He uses the word twice in order to describe the type of unity he wants to see here amongst the church. In fact, this is a similar phrase, having the same mind. It's a similar translation to what he says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, as he pleads with these two believers to agree in the Lord. And essentially, that's what a unified mind amongst believers looks like. We agree in the Lord. We stand in unity, in agreement, in the Lord. So again, here's Paul pushing these believers, his readers, to think the same and to be like-minded. We have to understand what that means. However, I think it's just as important for us to understand what that doesn't mean, right? We want to understand what that means, but it's also important to understand what that doesn't mean. And Paul isn't saying that we have to think the same way about every little thing. He's not saying we have to have the same feelings or opinions or thoughts or ideas about everything. He's not calling us to be carbon copies or robotic little imitations or duplicates of one another. That's not what he's telling us to do. He's not looking for yes men, right? He's simply challenging this group of believers to seek the same goal with the same mind. And that goal and that mindset is to see Christ Jesus exalted, to see the gospel preached and preserved and proclaimed. That's that singular, unified mindset that Paul is pushing towards. And he says it begins with us having the same love. 
If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul praised that their love would abound more and more. Again, we see that the love between believers is a consistent theme here in Paul's letter. But this type of love, again, must be motivated by Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is an essential part of our unity, Christ and his love for us. It's only through a commitment to Christ-centered love that we can combat and conquer the divisions that threaten to infiltrate the church. So Paul continues, them, continues here to challenge them, and he says, I want you to be of full accord. Now, this is an interesting phrase here, full accord. The wording that translates here, it literally means one soul, one soul. And this is a beautiful picture of the kind of unity that should be ever present among us as believers. A deep and intimate connection between the people of God, the body of Christ, moving together so unified, it's as if we are one singular soul, moving in the same direction. Again, think of the incredible impact that the church could have and how God would be glorified in that if this was our mindset. If this is how we move forward together as a people, being of one mind, moving in the same direction, having the same desired goal, the same desired end of making Christ known and exalting his name. This is what Paul wants for the Philippian church. Spoiler alert, this is what I want for our church. Most importantly, this is what Jesus wants for his bride. This is what Christ wants for his church. So this is a great place for us to stop and ask ourselves a couple of questions. What's our ultimate desire? What are we working towards as the church, as a body of believers? Are we unified in this mission, this goal? Are we divided amongst ourselves, seeking our own end? Listen, if we're not in full accord, if we're not moving in the same direction. If we're divided, man, that's eventually going to tell on us, isn't it? That's eventually going to surface in some way. It's only so long you can move together divided before it shows itself. Furthermore, and more importantly, we're not being a faithful and obedient church if we're not unified. We're not honoring Christ's command, right? So let's stop and think, what are we working towards? What's our goal? Right? If you want to experience real unity with Christ, we have to know who Christ is. We have to also be unified with our fellow man, right? We can't say that, yes, I have union with Christ, I'm following Christ Jesus, and then be divided with our brothers and sisters. Can't do that. In fact, if you walk in union with Christ Jesus, that would lead you to walk in union with your brothers and sisters. You remember how gracious of a king and host he is to allow me to fellowship with him. How can I not extend that same grace and fellowship to my brothers and sisters? Can't say I walk in union with Christ and then not be unified with your brothers and sisters for true unity is only found in him. And this type of unity, while it is very beautiful and life-changing, it's a great testimony, it's honoring to God, it's also very, very difficult. Whenever you have sinful people attempting to live in relationship with one another, it gets messy. Amen? Amen. It gets very dis- difficult. So let, this leads me to the final point, the final observation from this text. And that is that Christ-centered unity requires Christ-like humility. Christ-centered unity requires Christ-like Humility. Let's read verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> this is what Paul writes. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See here Paul addresses the motives of believers. He says we must do nothing from selfish ambition. You see, in order for us to be of one mind, we must set aside those selfish ambitions and that desire to seek our own glory. Paul knew that in order to create unity and harmony, 
you need to first have humility in mind. In order to achieve the kind of unity that he hoped for, it would require them and it requires us to exercise humility. The Apostle Paul knew that selfish ambition was the great enemy of unity. Listen, as long as we hold these ideas and these attitudes that we're here to advance and glorify self, we'll never experience true Christ-centered unity. We must sacrifice our own glory on the altar of humility. But the reality is that this idea of self-sacrifice, it's difficult for us because it goes against our very nature. Right? As human beings, our desire is to satisfy ourselves. Is it not? We want to fulfill our own desires. We love comfort and convenience. We love things our own way. Do you know why we love comfort and convenience? Because it's comfortable and convenient. And that's what we want to fulfill our own desires. If you don't believe that, look no further than the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. It says that the tree was a delight to the eyes and what? To be desired. To be desires. We love to feed our own desires. And not only do we love to feed our own desires, the world loves to feed and affirm your desires. They tell you to do whatever satisfies you, no matter how wicked and corrupt it is. Do what makes you satisfied. Feed those desires. There's an outlet for whatever it is you want, whatever it is you're looking for. But man, this should not be so among the people of God. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Listen, the two words that are here, uh, that are used here for vain conceit, translate to empty glory. Empty glory. You see, when we seek our own glory, it's impossible for us to be of one accord. Listen, if I stand up here on this platform and my whole reason for preaching is to glorify and elevate my name, it's impossible for us to move together unified because my goal is different from your goal. The goal of the church is to exalt Christ. The goal of Brandon is to exalt Brandon. That's not going to work. There's going to constantly be that tension there. Right? So we can't pursue our own glory. You can't seek your own glory and the glory of God. Those two ideas, in fact, are in contradiction to one another. Right? They're at odds with one another. You can't seek your glory and the glory of God. We find in John chapter 12, there's a portion where Jesus is uh, talking to a group of people and Uh, There's a group of people that claim to believe in Jesus Christ. They say, hey, we believe in Christ Jesus, but they wouldn't confess him publicly because they were scared to lose their spot in the synagogue. And in John 12, verse 43, this is what it says. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Man, if that's your desire to praise self, to uh, achieve this temporary and trivial applause of mankind, if that's what you're looking for, you're not genuinely following Jesus Christ. Your commitment cannot be to him and to the body if you're committed to yourself first. Right? Seeking your own glory is, in fact, an offense to God. We're actually robbing him of the glory that he is due In fact, let me tighten that up a little bit theologically. We're robbing him of the glory that only he is due. That only he is due. We must crucify our desire to see our name in lights. If we're going to move together unified as the people of God, if we're going to exercise and demonstrate legitimate humility. There's a reason Jesus consistently calls us to deny ourselves if we want to follow him. He knows the heart of mankind. He knows our tendency to be self-centered. He knows our selfishness is a stumbling block. It's a hindrance. And Paul knew that that would be a hindrance to the unity amongst those believers in the city of Philippi. So he calls them to a Christ-like humility, the kind of humility that's only possible when Christ Jesus changes your heart shifts your priorities, and you start to see yourself and others in the appropriate light. And so he says we must count others' needs before our own. We must count others as more important than ourselves. You see, rather than looking inwardly 
at what I need and what I want, being self-absorbed, I begin to look outwardly at my brothers and sisters to see what they need. See, I'm considering them in humility. So now I want to address the needs of the community. And when I use the word community, I mean the church, the body of Christ. When I move to a place of humility to see myself the right way and see my brothers and sisters in the right way through the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I move to meet their needs. It's not about me. It's not about having what I want. Man, unfortunately, the word humility, it leaves a bad taste in the mouths of a lot of people. When you hear the word humility, it kind of, ooh, I, I don't know. I don't know, but see, I think people have the wrong connotation when they think about the word humility. It's not beating yourself up or putting yourself down. It's simply building up and lifting up your brothers and sisters for their good and ultimately for the glory of God. It's actually a good and positive, wonderful thing. It doesn't have to be this negative, ugly, uncomfortable thing. You see, when we're all willing to be the least, when we all desire to place others higher than ourselves, this is how we put an end to disunity and contention. And again, I know this is difficult. It's hard to lower yourself and serve another human being, especially when sometimes it's like, man, this brother doesn't deserve that. I mean, did you hear the way he talked to me? And did you see what she said? None of that matters. Paul doesn't give you any clauses here, any loopholes to let you jump around that. We are called to a Christ-like humility. Again, here is another great place to pause and do some reflection. Is that me? Is that us? Am I seeking the good of others? Am I looking to their interests? Am I doing things with a selfish ambition? If so, this is a great place to stop, to repent, to pray and ask God to change your heart. And that we would be able to move forward together, serving one another with pure motivations, building one another up for the praise of the name of Jesus, not the praise of mankind, right? As we prepare to close our time here today, again, I want to remind you of the purpose that Paul writes this letter, why he writes this letter. And again, it's to unify the believers there. He's in writing, writing in hopes to end, put an end to this disunity that seems to be among them. But I want you to remember that Jesus, too, dealt with some disunity and division among his disciples and he taught his disciples to humbly serve one another. There's an encounter in Matthew chapter 20 where the mother of uh, James and John, they come to Jesus like, hey, man, can you make sure? She comes to Jesus and says, can you make sure my son sit at your right and your left? And when the other disciples hear this, it says they become indignant about this request. And so it starts to, to form this tension and they're, they're going back and forth with each other and Jesus and all of his wisdom and excellence. This is what he says to them. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Here is Christ Jesus again, pointing them back to the idea of humility that he demonstrated in its highest form. You know, Christ Jesus is our ultimate and supreme example of humility. The humility that he displays, it's, it's astonishing, it's astounding, it's breathtaking. You know, as Pastor Tyler mentioned, today is Palm Sunday. And we're reminded of Christ Jesus on his road to the cross, right? As he enters Jerusalem, King Jesus, right? But not as a typical earthly king. He rides in on a donkey. They didn't roll out the red carpet or give him rose petals. It says they used the garments of common folk and they cut branches off of trees to line the road for him. He didn't come like an earthly king. Not as they expected, he came in the most humble fashion. Jesus Christ humbled himself, making himself nothing, one with humanity, demonstrating this incredible, radical idea of humility. 
laying down his life for yours, purchasing our freedom, our redemption, and our reconciliation. That's why we celebrate this Palm Sunday. We celebrate him ushering in this kingdom, his kingdom, not like one of the world, when it's an upside-down kingdom, if you will, where we humbly serve one another. That's what greatness looks like in Jesus' kingdom, humility. And Christ chose to make himself nothing. This is what Paul is pointing his believers to. He knew that uh, unity was important. And the only way he was going to point them towards that is by first pointing them to the humble, suffering servant that is Christ Jesus, the one who lowered himself on our behalf and is now exalted to the highest place. We have to see that in order to live out this unity and this Christ-like humility. So as we close our time today, it's my hope that for us as the people of God, we would be encouraged by all that we have and all that we are in Christ Jesus. His encouragement, his love, the participation of the Spirit, the sympathy and affection, and that would move us to a place of one singular mindset, one singular goal, unified to bring glory and to exalt the name of Christ Jesus. And that from that, we would humbly and genuinely serve and love one another, all to the praise of his name. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you. God, this text has some incredible truths that move our hearts, that touch us, because of the love and encouragement we have in Christ Jesus, the freedom that we have freely given to us by your grace. God, we are thankful for that. I pray that we would be a people that is unified, that move forward together to bring glory to your name. God, I pray that we would exercise real humility, serving the interests of others above the interests of ourselves. God, that's hard, so we are dependent and reliant upon your Spirit to be actively at work in each of us, to do what we cannot do ourselves, to love and praise and glorify and honor Christ Jesus by the way that we love and serve one another. I pray for this body of believers, this group of people gathered here together this morning, even those who may not know you, God, maybe those who are far from you. I pray that we would see you, Jesus, the suffering servant, the ultimate demonstration of humility, and we would be moved to a place of worship and devotion. God, change our hearts, convict us, that we would repent and turn from moments where we haven't been humble, we haven't served others, we've exercised selfish ambition. God, rebuke us, convict us of that. Help us to be those who love each other in a genuine Christ-like fashion, all for the praise and glory of your name. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.